I mean, it's beautiful. That that's writing is just, my God, it's, it's the most terrifying thing, at least for me, the soliloquies, I mean, and just being out there in front of an audience and, and just open up naked to an audience is thrilling. And man, it, the stuff that you get to ask, those questions you put to the audience. Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And with us today we have Eric Tucker. Hello, Eric. Hi there. Eric Tucker is the artistic director of Bedlam. And Eric, I want to make sure I have this right. It's Bedlam, not Bedlam Theatre Company, not Bedlam Theatre, just the Bedlam, right? Just Bedlam, yeah. That's so edgy and new age. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like you have to be in the know that it has something to do with theatre. Like one of those unmarked secret clubs. <laughs> Eric Tucker is the artistic director of Bedlam. His most recent credits include Sense and Sensibility and the Seagull, currently playing at the Sheen Center in New York City on Bleecker Street. Recent credits also include St. Joan and Hamlet with Bedlam. Eric is a alumnus of the Trinity Repertory Brown Theater Actor Training Program, Brown University Theater Actor Training Program. And before we begin, we need to get down to the bottom of what is going on with the Brown Trinity program. All of these great theater companies seem to be springing up that have their roots there. Well, I actually, I was in their first MFA program, but it wasn't connected to Brown when I was there. It was connected to Rhode Island College. Later, several years after that, it switched over to Brown. But I mean, essentially, there were a lot of the same teachers at its core all the way through that. So I'm, I'm not sure how much changed once Brown took over, other than it was way more expensive, but also I'm sure that I, I know they <laughs> <laughs> way more expensive. And then they filled out the roster. And I think there was a bigger, it's become a bigger program. And obviously, because of that, they have a much bigger pick of talent. But it is a fantastic program. I mean, the training is fantastic. There must be something in the water because you've named your company Bedlam, which is chaos. And the other people that we've interviewed from Trinity are the Fiasco Theater Company. Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, actually, Andrus came up with our name. So it had nothing to do with me. And she thought she was reading a sign that said Bedlam. But the sign actually, when she looked at it, it said red something. It, It said something else. But she thought, oh, but that's still a great name. Let's go with Bedlam. So we did. Bedlam is just two years old. So the first season, the inaugural season, would have been in 2012, I assume. Yeah. You had great success with St. Joan and Hamlet that year. Yeah, well, we started off with St. Joan, and it ran for a few months at a small theater downtown called Access Theater. And we started getting people probing us about a commercial run of that. But at the time, we were in we were planning on bringing it back later in rep with Hamlet, but we had all of us had other projects and things. So a year later, we came back and opened Hamlet and then ran them both in rep for a few months. So we, I suppose we didn't really know those plays would carry us for a couple of years, but they did. And we're taking St. Joan to Boston this winter. So it's been good. And so now we're finally able to get out some other plays. And in the current season, you're doing The Seagull and Sensibility also in rep at the Sheen yeah. Center, which of course have had fantastic rave reviews in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and others. Yeah, I really wanted to do The Crucible for so long. And a friend of ours who helps us with the company now, a company member, wrote this version of Sense and Sensibility. And we workshopped it for a couple of years. She's a phenomenal writer. And I thought that would be a great pairing if we were going to do something like that. I mean, I've never... Is it Kate Hamill, by the way? Yes, Kate Hamill, who wrote it. 
And it's a really, really fantastic adaptation. Well, then I couldn't get the rights to The Crucible. So then I scrapped the idea and thought, well, maybe we'll tackle some Chekhov. And then we read it with Sense and Sensibility, Seagull and Sense and Sensibility, and it still felt okay. And I wanted to do her script since we had workshopped it. And so it ended up working out. So we kept Sense and Sensibility and Seagull, and this new adaptation of Seagull is really great. It just so happens that it, we get to do these classic pieces, but one of them's a world premiere and one's an American premiere, which is kind of nice. And they showcase some female writers and that kind of thing. So it felt like a good thing to do. Could you have imagined two years ago that you would have had the kind of success that you've enjoyed? Not necessarily. I was in a production of St. Joan that was really wonderful when I was at Trinity Rep that I acted in but didn't direct. And then I wanted to do it. I did it with three people in Los Angeles when I was living there, and it was successful. And I always really loved the play. And I didn't feel like I quite got it right with three people. But I knew if I had that one more person, I could do it with four. And the play had such great power over audiences. And so I did feel that if if we did it well, that it could run for a while. And I thought that if we could then run it in rep with something equally hard, with just four of us, and be good at it, or just clear storytelling at least, people might pay attention. So I wanted us to do something that was just really hard, but it feels very lucky just to have anyone notice what you do in New York City. So yeah, I mean, whoever knows. But it's a mystery. Yeah, it, it is kind of a mystery. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, I'm interested. You mentioned that you were doing St. Joan with four people and you also mentioned small casts. Is that part of Bedlam's aesthetic? Well, I always have had fun directing shows with very small casts. You know, I've been involved in a two-person Richard III, and I, a friend of mine and I did have a two-person Man of La Mancha that we've done in Los Angeles and we're trying to do here. So I've always had kind of done those things and seem to have a knack for it. I, I enjoy it. It obviously is a, a very economical thing when you start a company. You know, I brought on three friends to do it with, and... I do enjoy doing that. I think that it shouldn't stop you from doing a great play just because there's 28 people in it. Or, I mean, some of those stories are worth telling, but it's hard to tell them when you don't have money. So that's partly it. We went with 10 this time just because I was going to do The Crucible, and I felt like that's a play that needs a community. So I think it depends on the story itself. But I mean, sometimes it's just, it comes out of economics more than anything. But our next endeavor in the spring will be a smaller cast thing, probably four or five. Is that Merry Wives? <laughs> no, but um, we have some people in the company who have some one-person plays that are really, really good. And we think they should have a run and we might just put them together in a little festival and do that as well in the spring, besides a kind of a main stage thing or whatever you might want to call it. And another thing that I've read is that the audience is quite close to the players. Is that something that you do just because of space limitations or is that part of what you are going for? It's part of what I like to go for. I mean, I felt like when I did St. Joan in Los Angeles, I had a a big kind of warehouse space and I had these moving risers because I had just done a production of Macbeth where I had the audience on those risers and during the show, we constantly moved them around and and reformed the space and that was really fun. So wait, just to be clear, they stayed seated and their risers moved while they were in them. Yeah, there were four big risers and there were about 15 of us so we could move them you know, and, and constantly reconfigure. About maybe seven or eight times throughout the show it would completely change and in, the, in Shakespeare's Act 5 I mean, it would come in and out and in and out like bumper cars and it was like a ride. It was pretty fun. And that sounds fun. So I had those risers and I wanted to do Joan and I thought, well, I can continuously 
reconfigure it. So we, we started out with the space pretty wide and, and open for Act 1, which is pretty boisterous. And then the first scene of Act 2, we just did the little scene in the lobby while we redid the space. And then when they came in, the space was, was different. And then for Act 3, it was all we shoved it all in really tight. So for the Inquisition, everybody was right up against Joan. And so for this, the spaces in New York, we just put people on stage in that Act 3. And, and then we made them turn their seats around. And for the epilogue, we were up in the audience ourselves. So we had basically switched places with the audience by the end which was kind of fun and and then in Hamlet we just I I thought well I'll just start the play like St. Joan ends we'll start up in the house the audience is on stage so for all that stuff on the ramparts and everything and then in our act two we we switched that around so we were constantly just reconfiguring the spaces there's something about that moving them around them leaving the space and coming back in which helps tell the story in a really cool way and I think an audience goes on a journey with you and then there's an intimacy too. I mean, when they're on the stage and we really make them feel like, at least in Joan, that they were part of the Inquisition, that they are putting her on trial. We do it in Seagull as well for our act two, which is all indoors. We put the audience on stage in a really tight in the round circle. And so it's almost like watching a film, I think. It's also creating some amount of bedlam in the traditional theater setting. Yeah, that's true, actually. I mean, that's a good point. I never thought about it that way, but it is that way because, you know, you have to tell everyone at each intermission, you know, please grab your belongings and go to the lobby. And people aren't used to that. You know, they stake out a seat if it's general seating or you have your seat assigned and that's your seat. And we tell them, no, you've got to get up, grab all your stuff and leave. And there's a bit of chaos to that. That's true. And Mostly people come in their game for that, you know, to come in and not get to sort of snooze the whole time. (laughs) I don't know. Eric, you had great success in your first season with Bedlam, taking on the role of Hamlet. Yes. That is a monster of a coming out Uh, for for a founder and producing director. Did you direct that production as well? Yeah, it was the same four people. I really wanted it to be, you know, a show that could go with Joan in, in terms of its weight and on the same set, same costumes, and practically the same props. And Hamlet fit that description for us. And also, we felt like we would just take on one that was really hard, that we, I felt four of us could do. And then the themes of, you know, the Hamlet and St. Joan, each being in those stories very much loners against the rest of the world, and so that sort of thing. The speech that you chose to share with us today is, of course, one of Hamlet's famous soliloquies. He has several in the play. This one is one of the, to my mind, less often studied. Yeah, that's why. Oh, but it's so beautiful. It is, right? It's so great. This is Eric Tucker performing How All Occasions Do Inform Against Me from Hamlet, Act 4, Scene 4. How All Occasions Do Inform Against Me and Spur My Dull Revenge. What is a man if his chief good and market of his time? Be but to sleep and feed a beast no more. Sure he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. Now whether it be bestial oblivion or some craven scruple of thinking too precisely on the event, a thought which quartered hath but one part wisdom and ever three parts coward. I do not know why yet I live to say this thing's to do, since I have cause and will and strength and means to do it. Examples gross as earth exhort me. Witness this army of such mass and charge, led by a delicate and tender prince whose spirit with 
divine ambition puffed, makes mouths at the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death, and danger dare, even for an eggshell. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at stake. How stand I then that have a father killed a mother stained, excitements of my reason and my blood, and let all sleep, while to my shame I see the imminent death of twenty thousand men that for a fantasy and trick of fame go to their graves like beds, fight for a plot whereon the numbers cannot try the cause, which is not tomb enough and continent to hide the slain? Oh, from this time forth, my thoughts be bloody, or be nothing worth. Thank you so much, Eric. That was terrific. Eric, that is great. Oh my God. Thank you. The clarity of your voice and your thoughts is just fantastic. Thank you. Eric, if I had to ask you a crazy question, what's your favorite word in the speech? Oh, I have to say with this when I always did it, I have to say honor. Interesting. I don't know. There's just something about when I did it in performance, that word always felt like where it was leading for me or that that something about that thought rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at stake Eric, what's your you're referring to line 53 in the version that's available for our listeners on the yeah. website which begins in the midline there in the third foot uh, could you read that sentence for us rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at stake. And it's that word honor that resonates strongly with you. For me, I guess because that was how we ended our act two, and our act two was long because we ended our act one after the first five scenes, which was just all the stuff with the ghost. So we started our act two there and ended our act two with the speech you just heard, and that's, that's a long act too, but I wanted each of our intermissions to take place when time passes in the play. But when you have the sweep of the play leading up to that speech, when you're doing that speech after all the stuff that's happened, I think that's why it resonated for me so much was because I had been dealing with two hours of, should I do this thing or not do this thing, or why can't I do this thing, or what... What is it that I think in my head is actually happening, and why can't I be the honorable son? I have two thoughts about that. First of all, certainly it's a common theme that Shakespeare explores. But secondly, in your performance of it, you definitely highlighted that sentence. Slight pause, you changed your tone, and certainly it had a little bit more weight than the rest of the speech. I have to back up here. What on earth does this mean? It's a very difficult sentence to parse, isn't it? There's antithesis there, double antithesis. What (laughs) what is he trying to say here? I think what he's saying, let me get this straight in my head so I can be very clear about it, that for honor, to do the right thing, you have to find fault with something really small and that that sometimes is enough to prick you on to find where your honor lives. I mean, I think what he's saying, of course, is that So then how much more should I be stirred up? I mean, he's watching this army go by who are about to lose their lives over a piece of land that's worth nothing because they feel like it's the honorable thing to do. And he doesn't understand that. I mean, 
why? Why would someone go off to war to fight for a cause they know nothing about and that's worth nothing to them? And yet he flips it over in his mind, Hamlet does, and says, my father has been slain by my own uncle. My mother has been taken to wife by that same uncle. And I haven't been stirred up to the honorable thing myself. And so he's comparing himself to these 20,000 men that he's looking at. I mean, is that clear? Yeah, it's clear. I have to wonder whether Shakespeare and Hamlet are in agreement on this point. I think that's a really good point. I mean, Shakespeare, he obviously had ideas about what he thought honor was. and Yeah, and it seems like he spends a lot of time espousing the opposite argument. Yes, absolutely. I like this speech a whole lot, but I'm really struck by the comparison between this speech and Macbeth, which you mentioned you had played and directed. The if it were done when tis done speech, in which he laments the fact that he has no spur to prick the sides of his intent Mm -hmm. in a dishonorable deed. And yet here's Hamlet in precisely the opposite predicament. Yeah, exactly. I guess what's hard when you play roles like this, I had the fortune of playing Brutus this summer up at Shakespeare and Company in production of Caesar. And I, that's all about honor. And I feel like for a modern actor and modern audiences, I don't know that we know what that is, or I don't know that we're called upon to think about our honor. It's such a kind of romantic word now. You really have to delve deep to figure out, as you're saying those kinds of words when you do Shakespeare's, what is that for us? We don't think about it every day. No, we don't. I'm interested in a couple of lines. Sure, sure. Let's start with line 46, which is, Examples gross as earth exhort me. Yeah. It's a funny line because it seems to be offbeat a little bit, where the operative words fall on the unstressed foot. And it does have a midline stop in it. What's going on there? Do you think there's an unspoken pause there, or what's happening there? I always seem to pause there. You kind of can't help it. I always did this speech pretty fast. But I also feel, this is a whole other topic, but I also feel like so often I, I want to hear Shakespeare spoken at the speed of thought. And I feel like an audience can grasp it better when it's just coming at them and they don't have time to sort of think about it. That it's in English and when it's coming at you, your brain gets it. Maybe I don't pause enough in the speech to let things digest, but it feels like you can't help but pause after the strength and means to do it. Example, you know, it certainly feels like there's, there's a breath there, but I do love that gross yeah. because it's so plain to him. It's like, come on, look at this. And it's like right here at the end of this scene, he's faced with this huge example of his own um, immobility or, you know, indecisiveness. indecisiveness and, and, yeah. he's been, and so I love that. And I don't know what how the structure supports that. Yeah, it's a funny line because I know that you could say do it and make right but as written most of the time it's do it the other line that is even more interesting is line 65 which was another midline stop line and it's to hide the slain oh from this time forth and that is missing a beat and of course he's making a very important decision in this line right (laughs) yeah and do you think that's what's happening i mean he's taking a moment i think so i think when i was performing it it felt like that the decision was building within him me as i talked through all of that stuff so that by the time i got to oh from this time forth i was ready to say to the audience watch me next time you see me I'll be different. And what I love about that, and I really tried to get in the the performance we did, was that when I came back from 
England, I was a really almost a different character that you, even the energy of the entrance and the way I carried myself was like a new person. You could go off stage and let go of all the crap you'd built up before the performance, all the crap during the performance, and come back a refreshed, new, reinvigorated person. What I love about it is that he's actually saying something here that he means, that he knows, and is going to make come true. I don't know. So I do think he's making a big decision there, but I think the speech is there for you. You're making it all that while. It's building up, and you know. And so it's a fait accompli, or it's a crystallization of all the stuff that you've been talking about? Maybe a crystallization of all the stuff, but... But certainly, you're also, it is something that's happening in the moment. Eric, they say it takes 20 years to become a master. And I'm wondering, what discoveries are you still making in your own craft that you wish you had made 20 years ago? Boy, that's good. I think the most important thing is that with Shakespeare, I think you have to have the text so deeply in your body and that but I feel like beyond that that everyone who performs Shakespeare I feel like if you've got a handle on the basic rules of this text of how to speak this text the iambic pentameter of course I'm, I'm speaking about the verse I think then you have to let it go and it has to be you speaking and speaking as the thought comes and so all the rules you've learned, that some of that might go out the window. But if you're clear and if it's in your body, I think an audience will react to that. And they don't know those rules mostly. I think you just have to bring as much of yourself to it. And that's more important than any of the other stuff. And if you've done that work, it, it will be clear. Well, what's interesting to me about that is the rules, when you say the rules, it's obviously the iambic pentameter and all the, the various literary devices, but it's also the speech rules, how to speak a little bit more clearly. But then you can't pay attention to those because you have to bring your own personal sensibility to it. Otherwise, we're just robots. Yeah. I, you know, some people say, well, you really have to take a breath at the end of every line. You need to take that slight pause and say, what at the end of every line? I think that can really invigorate a speech. I love that. And I like rehearsing with that sometimes and find, well, why am I going from this to this? Even if it's, I love that. And I think you could do all of these speeches exactly that way. And it could be really invigorating and exciting. Some people think that's hogwash or whatever. Of course, you know, there's so many things people ascribe to. I feel like what's important is that we always know this is not how people spoke. This is a, a kind of a poetry in a way that Shakespeare wrote. You've got to choose the words because the way you talk every day doesn't work for the kind of emotional place you're in. You know, it's the these moments that happen to us in life that we can't put words to, he's able to put words to. And so if the language can be clear because we have to choose the word because only that word will work in this moment. And I feel like that's an important thing to grasp onto because I, I feel like when I'm coaching actors, you know, you can say, well, articulate, articulate, be clear. But if they're choosing the word somehow, they suddenly are articulating better because they're actually thinking about what oh, they're saying. Absolutely. We keep reducing our words and the way we, I mean, we, everything's becoming so lazy and maybe that's the wrong word to use, but. LOL, man, LOL. Right. 
Right. Or we'll use one word. You know, we say, everything's amazing. Everything's brilliant. But what is it really? You know, isn't there something better, something much more specific that could describe a feeling you're having? And that's Shakespeare. Well, so we're not going to get the scoop about what's coming up next for Bedlam, but we'll stay tuned okay. <laughs> for further developments. <laughs> yeah, soon. Yeah, we'll figure something out. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. That was fun, you guys. Thank you. Thanks so much, Eric, for taking the time. Cheers. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And this is The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.